Thank you, Don. Thank you, band. Glad to be with you guys this morning. Let's pray as we begin our sermon. Lord God, I thank you so much that you are here, that you have given us a community to worship you with. Lord, that you have called us to this time and to this place, and we wait here expectantly to hear what it is that you will continue to say. We know you've already been saying things to us as we have worshiped you through song, that we have worshiped you through giving. And Lord, as we look at your word, help us to worship you in that way as well. Lord, help us to have open ears and open hearts. In your name, amen. Well, happy Labor Day weekend. Yeah, I don't know why you laughed at Labor Day weekend. That's weird. Labor Day weekend is is set up to, as you might expect, to celebrate, to recognize, and pay tribute to the achievements of the American worker. As a country and as a society, we think that this is such a big deal that our hard work, both physical and intellectual, is worth celebrating that we take the day off. I mean, that's a big deal here in the U.S. because we're selective about our federal holidays. We only have 10. It probably won't surprise you to know that of the recognized holidays, that as a country, we're on the lower end of things, that we don't give a whole lot of them. We give 10. Uh, Cambodia gives 28. So if you're thinking about moving, think about Cambodia. Which means the fact that we've made this celebration of work, one of them, kind of a big deal. It's significant. Across the U.S., we will celebrate with parades, barbecues, and a ton of retail sales. So apparently, if you need a mattress, this is the weekend to buy one. (laughs) Don't miss out. Here in Seattle, we throw our biggest music and arts festival. Starts Friday, goes all the way through the end of tomorrow. My birthday gets celebrated. And then here at Bethany, we uh, offer a faith and work sermon every Labor Day weekend. This is our third one. Welcome to it. We're really glad that you're here. So happy Labor Day weekend. Woo! So exciting. At Bethany, we started discussing faith and work about six years ago, seeing that the conversation could be one that would help us live more into the fullness of who we are, who we understand ourselves to be, that our faith wouldn't need to be quite as compartmentalized as sometimes it is when we live into our relationship with the Lord, but yet go to these workplaces that are sometimes non-Christian, oftentimes not really Christian affirming. So what does it look like? like to be Christians in these environments. So we started talking about things like Psalm 24 and 1 Corinthians 10 that say, the earth is the Lord and everything in it. If the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, then there really is no sacred secular split. That all legal, moral jobs can reflect the glory of God. And if we're invited by Jesus in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission, And in Luke 10, when the disciples go out in pairs to share the good news of Christ to those who don't know him, what does that look like at work when we're surrounded by folks who don't know Jesus, having conversations about these things, about the significant testimony of Christ that we're able to offer at work? What does that look like? How do we have uh, this testimony? 
just kind of as an abbreviation, because you might not have been here for the last six years or not, might not have been in every conversation, kind of the number one, if you're like, how should I be a Christian at work? The number one thing that you can do is do your work well. Bill Brammer, who is our executive director here for all of Bethany, he and I get to work a lot together. And he tells this story about how he's manager at Microsoft. And this woman comes up to him and says, man, this guy on our team keeps saying he's going to pray for me. He's going to pray for me. He's going to pray for me. It's weird. I have not asked him to pray for me. Like, I don't like it. And honestly, I wish he would pray a little bit less and do his work a little bit more because he's not that great at his job. And Bill's like, oh, thanks for sharing. Uh, but it's a good message for all of us. Like, if you want to represent Christ well, do your job well. Again, in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. That counts for spreadsheets and for life-changing moments. There are, of course, other significant things that give testimony to Christ at work. Not gossiping is a huge one. Forgiving those who wrong us. These are just a few things. There are plenty more that we've been talking about in classes, sermons, small groups. We'll continue talking about, so if this is at all interesting to you, jump in at any time. Today, I thought it might be helpful to bump our conversation about faith and work both up a little bit and back a little bit. To start at the beginning and discuss some of those narratives about work that we have believed. What are some of those narratives? Do, do we believe them? Do we want to believe them? The thing about our narratives is that they're so embedded in our family systems, in our culture and identity, that many of them have snuck in or have just always been. So we didn't necessarily make a conscious choice that this is what we wanted to believe or that this is what we wanted to pass on to others. One of my author mentors, so somebody who does not know that I exist, but has written stuff that changed my life, said in the podcast recently that before we authorize a narrative to be important in our lives, to critique our lives, and even more so to organize our lives, let's be sure that we've bought into that belief system. So to talk about some of these narratives, give us a launching point. We're going to watch a short video that's a recording of Alan Watts. He was an English philosopher who was at his prime in the, all of the 60s, the early 70s. And as we watch this video, I would encourage you to pay attention to what narratives are being told. Uh, are they narratives that ring true to you? Are they narratives that you find false? So take a look. In music, one doesn't make the end of a composition the point of the composition. If that were so, the best conductors would be those who played fastest. And there would be composers who wrote only finales. <laughs> People go to a concert just to hear one crashing chord. So that's the end. <laughs> but we don't see that as... Uh, something brought by our education into our everyday conduct. We've got a system of schooling which gives a completely different impression. It's all graded. And what we do is we put the child into the corridor of this grade system with a kind of, come on, kitty, kitty, kitty. And yeah, you go to kindergarten, you know. And that's a great thing because when you finish that, you'll get into first grade. And then, come on, first grade leads to second grade, and so on, and then you get out of grade school, you've got high school, and it's revving up, the thing is coming. Then you're going to go to college, 
And by Jove, then you get into graduate school, and when you're through with graduate school, you go out to join the world. And then you get into some racket where you're selling insurance. And they've got that quota to make. And you're going to make that. And all the time, the thing is coming. It's coming. It's coming. That great thing, the, the success you're working for. Then when you wake up one day about 40 years old, you say, my God, I've arrived. <laughs> I'm there. And you don't feel very different from what you always felt. And there's a slight letdown because you feel there's a hoax. And there was a hoax. A dreadful hoax. They made you miss everything. We thought of life by analogy with a journey, with a pilgrimage, which had a serious purpose at the end, and the thing was to get to that end. Success or whatever it is, or maybe heaven after you're dead. But we missed the point the whole way along. It was a musical thing, and you were supposed to sing or to dance while the music was being played. So just kind of show hands if that's too taxing, nod your head. Like, did something re like resonate with you in this? Have you heard these things? Have you thought maybe a few of you? Man, I should have done something that's even easier than nodding your head. I'm sorry, I didn't think of that. But somewhere along the lines, there are, we've been told these things, right? Maybe you've consciously said like, nope, I don't believe that, or yes, I do. But often those are some of the messages that we've been told. A caveat about this video itself, uh, there are a couple of deep problems with this video. Everyone in this video is white, everybody in this video is male. Some, some challenges with that. There's also this subtext of the necessity of higher education. This person not only goes to college, they go to graduate school. And the focus is exclusively on this field of business, right? Everyone's in suits. All the white men are in suits. So we call that out and also say that it, it, doesn't, so it doesn't represent humankind very well on, on the whole, but it also gives voice and imagery to some of the social narratives that we have about what work is, about what we're working toward, how we're to interact with it or think about it, and how it fits into our perspective on life. Between this video and countless conversations I've, ha I've had, I've found three beliefs around work that pop up regularly, and I'm convinced that they're maybe not very helpful for us. So the first is that we should know exactly where we're going. The second is that work follows a linear progression. And the third is that work should be our passion. The first, that, the first belief that I question is that we should know exactly where we're going. There's some level of thinking that says once we're adults, and that's the vast majority of us, that once we're adults, the time for figuring it out is over, and we should know by now where we're going. In my conversations, this often takes the shape of people saying some version of wondering what God's will is for their life, what their calling is, if they should stay at their job or pursue something different or more meaningful. We'll talk about passion in a moment. To the extent that these questions are asking about what to do next and talking through the nuance of someone's specific situation, the point in life that they're at, those are great conversations, conversations to be had. Underneath those conversations, that is fundamental to the kind of answers we're looking for, is what is our belief about how much we should know about where we're going? Or said in theological words, how do we understand the will of God? Is the will of God a thing or is it a way? If the will of God is a thing, 
If there is a definitive the attached to the will of God, uh, that he has a specific plan for us, then this implies that heaven has a timeline-based manual on each of us, and we're down here poking around, trying to figure it out, hopefully not straying too far off course. And if we do, then as quickly as possible, trying to figure out how to get back on course without mucking it up too badly. One of the main problems that the, that the will of God possesses or poses is that when it's definitive, what happens when we realize that the guy we dated in our 20s that we broke up with because we didn't have a mentor in our lives and therefore concluded that he couldn't be the one because he wore too much black and no one wears that much black and is a normal human being. And now he's married to someone else who is clearly second string for him because he was the one for us, now only leaves us with second string options. That is, if we figured it out right away, that what love was. And if we didn't garner wisdom about romantic love for a long time, then as far as we know, we could be as far down as four or fifth string people because we've just mucked it up so badly. So now we've got a sixth or seventh string life partner. I mean, that's fine, right? (laughs) Or what happens when we realize that, oops, being an attorney isn't the life-giving job that we thought it was. It isn't what we thought it would mean, but maybe we shouldn't have gone to law school after all, because in retrospect, we've always wanted to be a middle school teacher, and Mrs. Johnson in middle school was so awesome, and I'd like to be that person to other kids, and we have a bunch of giftings in that direction, but now not only do we need to go back to school, but we also have $250,000 of student debt. What are we going to do with that? If there is the thing It suggests that the vast majority of things around us, the things presented to us, the things in front of us are the wrong thing because there's only one right thing. The vast majority of things around us are the wrong way. And that things that in and of themselves aren't sins, there's no sin in going to law school versus getting an education certificate or dating or marrying this person or that person, but the thing, if it's the thing, it lends itself to increase anxiety, that we have a chance at messing up or missing our lives, what would have been our perfect lives. If there's the thing, it also suggests that we follow a God who creates a perfect plan for our lives and then graciously helps us to make do with the places that we have missed his plan. So we're having to make do and God is helping us to live with plan B, C, Q, depending on how long we've messed up. An alternative is to think of God's will as a way, an unfolding, a process by which we grow into choice-making for the duration of our lives. There's no place in which we know exactly how it's going to be. If God's will is a way, a path, a journey, then every opportunity, every crossroad, every time someone says, hey, have you thought about being a middle school teacher? Every time it gives us a chance to ask God what he wants us to do. How does he want us to respond? If God's will is a way, that means that once we're done with this very expensive law degree and through volunteering experience think that we might really enjoy being a middle school teacher, we don't have to beat ourselves up that we messed up, that we wasted our time and money that we should have known sooner. It's not moved us away from God. He's not going to punish us for making that poor decision. But rather, we can talk to him about what does this look like right now in our lives? 
How do we take our current state, the relationships we've made, the way we understand him and his people, and move in the direction that we feel like he is leading us next? Maybe that's going back to school. Maybe that's getting a teaching certificate. Maybe that's being an attorney while volunteering your heart out with middle schoolers. That God's will is a way can be seen in our scripture today. In John 2, Jesus, his mother Mary, and his disciples are all at a wedding doing their thing, which, side note, Jesus goes to a lot of parties and throws a lot of parties. On side note. So Mary sees this need at this party and asks Jesus to get involved, and Jesus responds with, not yet. Today is not the day. Clearly, Jesus did not have it pre-planned that this is the day he was going to begin to make himself known as the Messiah. Dave Evans, an author, Stanford professor, lover of Jesus, tells this story, and when it gets to the part, he's, this part, he says, who sinned? Was it Mary or was it Jesus? Is it Mary for overstepping and asking Jesus for a miracle that he didn't think he was going to do? Or is it Jesus because he's convinced that today wasn't the day? Someone must have gotten it wrong. Evans goes on to say that maybe neither of them got it wrong. Rather, maybe this works great because Jesus in his full humanity didn't know that today was the day. Instead, Mary, prompted by seeing a potential social disaster of the wine running out at the wedding, comes to Jesus and, see, and asks him this question. Jesus, in turn, checks in with God, and God says, yes, in fact, it is today. It's right now. Do this. What if that's how it works? That even the Messiah gets just-in-time discernment, and it comes through a communal process. That no one really knows exactly where we're going, but rather it's revealed one step at a time through prayer, discernment, wisdom, and our community. I mentioned the last time I preached that my life has changed drastically in the last two months, that almost after a year of prayer and discussion, my 14-year-old nephew has moved in with me, and on Tuesday, he starts school at a private school that I cannot currently afford. One of my really dear friends has multiple times, with such sincerity, said, I'm just worried you don't know what you're getting yourself into, at which every single time I reply, oh, I absolutely do not know what I'm getting myself into. Like, how would I know? Like, I'm not delusional. I've never done this before. Sometimes I say it with a lot of personal confidence. The vast majority of the time I say it from borrowed, with borrowed confidence from other people who've been encouraging but facing that we can't really and fully know what we thought we might be able to know, the, the, all the details, what things should look like, can be anxiety-provoking. But I hope that more so it's freeing, that in accepting that the majority of the time we don't know exactly where we're going isn't creating a new reality. It's not like that used to be true and now I'm telling you it's not true anymore. It's actually never been true. We don't know, we've never really known. And now we can accept that reality. We've never really known exactly where we're going. Instead of the belief that we should know exactly where we're going, that our time for figuring it out is over, what if we adjust our narrative to say that we won't always know exactly where we're going, but we can know whether we're headed in the right direction following the compasses that God has given us his word, his character, our community, prayer, 
discernment, just to name a few. The second belief around work that I question is that work follows a linear progression. This video shows this idea so clearly. There's this message of, you know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, you know, you go through high school, graduate school, all of those things, and then you come to the building, right? And did you notice that they keep going up, 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 up? Sometimes they go over, but like in the building, as they're uh, following their, their whatever, they keep going up until they've arrived at the top. I certainly, I don't, I hope somebody else felt this way so I'm not entirely alone. You know, this, the day after you graduate with your master's degree, you wake up and you're like, why doesn't everyone treat me like I'm smarter? Like, am I supposed to wear this cap and gown every day so that they keep knowing what I've accomplished? Uh, don't do that. But, but really, there is this little bit of a letdown of like, oh, wait, I'm, I'm actually more the same than I was different. I just spend a lot of money and see the world in a little bit of a different way. I think this belief of work following a linear progression manifests itself in two different predominant ways. One is that we're real surprised, oftentimes thrown off, when A plus B does not equal C. And the other is that it's a real struggle to do anything that's perceived as going backwards in our work. So taking time off, taking a pay or benefit cut, switching careers entirely. Again, both of these conversations are worth having, are they're important to have in order to figure out what we believe, where we are in work, given our current, given our current situation. And it can be really disruptive understandably, when the track you thought you were on at work that would give you more authority and responsibility isn't seeming to pan out. That's understandably disruptive and disappointing. Or when it might make more sense for your finances and values that a parent with a vibrant career become a stay-at-home parent. Like that, understandably, there's some question marks in there. But if we look at these two things and step back, we look at our lives as a whole, it is very often that A plus B does not equal C. Whether it's job opportunities that have been available to us, the financial reimbursement that we get is not necessarily aligned with the work that we've put in, and if we're honest with each other, that happens both ways, right? There's times you get paid and you're like, 30 minutes of work, thanks for that. And then there's other times that you're like, blood, sweat, and tears, and this is all you give me? Like, it, it really goes both ways, that A plus B does not always equal C compared to the work that we've put in. Or it can be in a personal way, the way our health is manifested over the years. That we take care of ourselves to the best of our ability and we still have chronic pain. That doesn't seem fair. But it also does seem to happen regularly. Those types of things, whatever the examples are, it's often the reality that A plus B does not equal C. And yet, we have a belief system often that this is how it should be. Equally, that we, would, that we shouldn't do anything that moves us, quote-unquote, backwards in our career. Anything that pays us less, anything that gives us less authority or responsibility, starts us over. We, to have this belief, to manifest this in any sort of way, I think significantly damages our society. Not only because we've created this unnecessary hierarchy that something that you're doing is better, that more money is better than less money, which if you think about it, is not really the economy of God. It's not really how the kingdom of God works. Whether you're a barista at Starbucks or the store manager, you both contribute to hopefully a great Starbucks experience. Depending on how you feel about that beverage, you at least 
offer a warm beverage to the world. You, you contribute, you are just as equally uh, uh, valuable, and yet we've created a lot of these like fake hierarchies about who's more important. This belief makes almost no room for people to make changes. No room to say, I think I'm gonna try something different. But if we have to stay at whatever sort of level we feel like we are now, it makes it really hard to change. It also makes it very hard for people to be stay-at-home parents or to be caregivers of anybody who, who might need more significant help without a message of inadequacy. Because almost everyone has had a job before they had a kid, which kind of is what I hope for our, us, that that's the progression of things. Get a job, then have a kid, not like have a kid at 15 or whatever. But if you did that, that's great too, uh, honestly. Uh, but, that, but whatever it is that, uh, if you have a job and you're stepping away to, to, give a, to give care to a child, to a parent, to somebody in your family who you need to, whatever that, uh, that job was, it certainly paid you more than your child is gonna pay you, for sure. You had more influence and control of others than you do with that child and more influence over your own life, what you're going to do day to day. I think about Josh, who is this MBA, MBA educated business consultant who for the last year has been a stay-at-home dad, and I think the majority of humanity would say that sending a kind person into the world, like raising up and sending a kind person into the world is a huge accomplishment. But under this current belief system that we can't step back, that we can't change things, that we can't lose any part of our hierarchy, it makes it a real tough space to live into this, to be able to do this with any sort of freedom. The question that this belief of linear progression at work asks us to ask, who do we think God is? Does God give us a roadmap or a compass? Does he print out or send us turn-by-turn directions to our phone? Or is he molding us to reflect him more within the circumstances that we're working with? Who do we think God is? That's not to say that it's always one or the other, that he always, you know, he either, we have to think of him as a direction giver or we have to think of him as, as only molding us. This summer, as we went through the book of Jonah, it was the, the case with Jonah that God gave him very clear directions, right? Go to Nineveh, tell them that if they don't repent, I'll destroy them. It could not have been clearer, which is why it was very clear that Jonah initially chose not to do that. Or God gives direct, gave directions to the Israelites take the, to take the land he had promised them. Do this, it's yours. Like, I know it seems like your army is the smallest. I know it seems like this is an unlikely situation, but really do this. Here's the turn-by-turn instructions. And they did choose to do it. It just took them about 80 years to decide. Just kind of a side note on this. Uh, I've said it myself. I'm sure lots of us have said it like, Lord, I just wish you would give us the step-by-step directions. And then I think of these stories and I go, I don't know if we would have done it if God would have told us. But that's a side note. Just think about that next time you think it. So there are those times when God is clearly directive, but then we see the vast majority of the times that he's not. Paul's ministry is a great example. That guy is all over the place. He wanted to preach to the Israelites and God puts him in all these situations time and time again where he's preaching to the Gentiles, those that don't know his culture or his faith tradition. In Acts 16, we see Paul and Silas trying to preach in the region of Galatia and being prevented by the Spirit from preaching. 
He's coming to Missa, and he's also unable to preach. Like, it's God who's preventing him from preaching. God who's preventing him to preach to all of Asia. So the guy is literally just walking around Asia, just trying doors, and God being like, nope, not this one. What about this one? Nope, not this one. Why would God do this? God could have easily given him the dream that he ultimately ends up giving him way after Paul has made all of this walking around journey that says, go to Macedonia. And it seems like it would have been way more efficient, way more effective, some might say linear, for God to just be like, oh, Paul, don't waste your time. Just go straight to Macedonia. That's where I want you to be. But he doesn't. The testimony of Paul's life and ministry is that he is a motivated, motivating, resonating, on-fire preacher of the Lord Jesus, and it would make sense to us Nay, it would make sense to Paul. He asks the same question. Why God doesn't have him headlining the book tour? And instead, he finds himself teaching people that he doesn't know nearly as well as he knows the Jewish folks, and he spends a lot of time waylaid with traveling hiccups, opportunities that didn't pan out, and some time in jail. What's God doing? We see again and again that God gives specific situation directions in the small spaces, but he never gives a complete, ahead-of-time, step-by-step directions on how to get there. The vast majority of the time, he gives both just enough information to take the next step, and often that next step requires faith and community confirmation, because if we do this one thing, we're not quite sure what the next thing is going to be. The belief that work follows a linear progression typically works out for us all the way through whatever level of education we participate in because that's how education is structured. But the rest of the world, God's world is not structured that way. As our world expands to include more options, circumstances, responsibilities, opportunities, thinking that there has to be a linear progression can serve as a limitation to enjoying our own life, to valuing the lives of others, and living the adventure that our particular life is offering us. What if instead of work following a linear progression, we chose to believe that God will let us know everything we need to know in time, and that the journey we take might lead us to places we've never expected, but will ultimately be right where we want to be? We might not know that until retrospect, but what if we believe that we ultimately will be where we want to be? Finally, a belief that I don't think is working for us is that our work should be our passion. Passion at work, even the thought that work should be meaningful, is a relatively new idea. We're talking like 50, 75 years, like new concept that work should be meaningful. Traditionally, jobs have been used to make money, and we get meaning, value, individuality from family and community. There are all sorts of conjectured reasons about why this is the case. Like, why does work matter so much that it be meaningful right now? Like, how did it spread so quickly and so broadly? Have the other places and systems that used to make meaning have begun to weaken? Has the increase in knowledge jobs created a vacuum where people who once went to work and felt like they did something, like they made a widget or they said, look at these things that I did today, now we're so far removed from what we make that we're like, do I even matter? God is a creative God and with very few exceptions helps reveal the glory of God at work. 
Our work helps society function. Work itself is good. And yet we often think or hear that our work should be connected to our passions, that it should drive our lives, that it should bring meaning to us. There's absolutely nothing the matter with this. And if that's where you are, terrific, great. For the rest of us, take comfort in the research done by Bill Damon that shows only 20% of people have an identifiable singular passion. That's not very many people. The other 80% have either multiple passions or can't identify their passions. So focusing on the passion plan of finding a job is not very useful for the majority of the population. Further research shows that often engagement comes first. That before we have passion, we have engagement. And as we engage, develop mastery over something, passion and purpose follow from that. We can talk about what a balanced life looks like later because that's often a conversation that comes up because we say, oh, I want a work-life balance. Notable that you're pulling work out of your life, but that's interesting as well. We're, but how are we able to take our many lives, our many selves, into the things that we care about? How are we able to be all of the things that we are at work? I'm a daughter, an aunt, a pastor, an athlete, a dog owner who loves hanging out with friends and cares deeply that whales should not be in captivity. What job should I get? I mean, if you know one that I can be all those things, let me know, but there really isn't, honestly. No one's gonna pay me to do many of these things. There's not a job for all of that. Again, some of us do get to work in fields that directly connect us with the things that drive us, but the vast majority of us work in jobs that somewhat connect to the things that drive us, the things that we care about. And then there's quite a few of us who don't necessarily connect with what we do at our job in a meaningful way at all. It just allows us to do the things that drive us. Instead of believing that our work should be our passion, what if we re-articulate that a passion a work is, at work is great, but it's not necessarily a prerequisite for thriving? Today, we kind of just had the opportunity to do the tip of the iceberg about what our belief systems around work might be, how they may or may not be working for us, and what they suggest about who God is. And I hope that in the future, all of us in some capacity get to have ongoing conversations because it really is an ongoing conversation. Our lives are not static. They're changing all the time. So our questions about work today are going to be different this time next year that we can have these conversations with our family, our friends, because again, work is sometimes things we get paid for, but oftentimes things that we don't. I hope too that we get to have these conversations collectively, that we are all Christ's ambassadors cleverly disguised as fill in your role. We're Christ's ambassadors cleverly disguised as administrative support, as healthcare providers, as artists, what are we telling people about who God is? Is that what we're meaning to say? What are we believing about who God is? Is that what we're meaning to believe? In a moment, we'll get an opportunity to participate in communion. And as we participate in that, I would invite you, before you partake, to just take a minute and jot down, write it in your mind, whatever works for you, what belief systems might not be serving you very well or helping you to represent Christ in the world? 
Because Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took his body and blood and said, do this in remembrance of me. He says, remember, I did the work. I've done the work on the cross that then allows us to do the work in our workplaces. Join me in prayer. Lord God, I thank you so very much that we are works in process, that we are on this journey of discovering who you are, discovering who we are, discovering how you are at work in the variety of places that we exist. And Lord, for a lot of us, that's our nine to five-ish job. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to take the next step. I pray that as we participate in community, that we would embody this in our work that we would embody who you are, the work that you have done, and that you would be glorified through all of Seattle, all of the places that we go because of what you've done. In your name, amen.